Meet people through their music. Out of the box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. there FBI radio listener and welcome to Out of the Box. Every Thursday from midday to one I get to sit down with a one person and talk through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today, Mojo Juju. Mojo grew up in regional New South Wales. Her father had migrated from the Philippines in the 80s. On her mother's side she is Wiradjuri. She has connections to the land that she grew up on going back thousands of years. In addition to being a music lover, an Elvis fan and teenager, Mojo was and still is mixed heritage and queer. And it was a very personal experience of being an outsider with stories of her dual heritage that would inform her latest album, Native Tongue, stories which were absent from her music for a long time. Since its release last year, she has received three ARIA nominations, a J Award, multiple festival slots tonight, She's playing at Twilight at Taronga Zoo. But right now, Mojo Juju, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's, it's a uh, slightly rainy day in Sydney today. Uh, n- nothing too intense, but uh, perhaps something that would stroke some anxiety for you uh, <laughs> because of a concert experience that you've had recently. Can we start uh, Can we start by talking about Paul Kelly's show in Melbourne off the top <laughs> of the show here? Yeah. I feel like we had a, we've had a run of like bad weather when we've had shows, but this Paul Kelly show was something I'd n- like I'd never seen before. So we were like opening first band on stage, everything kind of going to schedule. We all knew that it was going to rain. But we were assured that it was going to be fine and that everything was going to go ahead as planned. But our, our set got cut short and then moments after they told us, like, stop playing, um, the speakers fell over into... <laughs> because we couldn't see from where we were, like, over the edge of the stage and, like, the foldback speakers and everything. But in front of us, because it's kind of like an amphitheatre... Um, it it had started flooding right at the front of the stage, and then the f- speakers, like the um, subs that were like on the ground, started floating and they flipped over into the water. So they just had to sort of can enough everything. water for the massive speakers to float. Yeah, in- and wow, then, and then it's like a over. swimming pool. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. And then um, so they kind of like canned everything, and they weren't letting people in, but they weren't letting people out because it wasn't safe. So they just people just had to wait, but a testament to Paul Kelly's like icon status is because <laughs> people did they they waited in the rain. Wow! And they waited. I think it was like two hours or three hours that everything was postponed, but people just stayed. Three hours in rain, heavy enough to cause a swimming pool to emerge in front of the stage. Yeah, and people stayed, and then it stopped raining, and then everything kind of continued on. And it was packed. It was like it was like I don't I can't remember what the like capacity is in there. Like, but it was big. like you know it was like ten or twenty thousand. It was kind of kind of like big, 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 big. And 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 bad weather has or, or ominous <laughs> weather has been a theme for some of your recent shows. Yeah, yeah. It just keeps following us. I don't know what it is. We had the dust storm in Sydney on the night of our album tour show at. Oxford Arts Factory. Um, 
Yeah, I, like it's it just seems like it just seems like it follows us wow. everywhere. But you know, I'm not I'm not um, suggesting that that's what's going to happen tonight at Taronga Zoo. I'm I'm actually quite um, confident that you know everything's going to be just fine. So am I. The weather's going to clear up. We're going to have a good time. <laughs> the prospect of playing at a zoo, what's wrong because you, you haven't been to one before. Is that an exciting one for you? Okay, so I haven't been to Taronga Zoo in Sydney, but I have been to Western Plains Zoo in Dubbo because that's where I grew up, which is also a Taronga Zoo now. Um, and we actually played there just a few months ago. And I kind of grew up going to see shows at the zoo there. Like wow. the bands would come out and play at the zoo. So there. they have a setup within Dubbo Zoo. I mean, probably the most the way Western Plains Zoo. Yeah. So, sorry, the, probably the most famous zoo in Australia for its size and um, tourist magnetism. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a pretty amazing zoo. I don't know, you know, if you've been there, but um, it's like it's an open range zoo, and because of the climate and the kind of landscape out there it's kind of got a savanna thing like thing going on so they have a lot of african animals and they 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 seem to have a really really successful breeding program there because i think the animals like you know are quite happy there's a lot of room sometimes you'll go and you won't even see any animals because they'll be like off hiding in the shade somewhere or like and and because they've got such massive enclosures there's no cages or anything so you kind of looking out it's just like moats and whatever and things like so that they can't you know that that's yeah, the barrier yeah. but you're sort of looking across and it feels like they're right there with you i actually last or not last time i was there a couple of times ago like a few years ago i was there and i saw these two elephants mating <laughs> um very close very close up there's nothing in the way to obstruct my view so i knew exactly what was going on and then, you know, I come back like a year and a half or two years later and, and there's a a baby elephant. So I was like, boom. There you go. I feel I feel like, you you're, know, you're part I, of I played witness to that. What was it like? I mean, Dubbo informs a, a lot of um, your story. It was where you spent a lot of your childhood and your teenage years. Yeah. What was that like returning to do a show at? I mean, in, in thinking of the trajectory of how your career has gone, particularly in the last few years, can you tell me about that? Well, look, I like to be totally honest, I, I left home and I got as far away from Dubbo as I possibly could. You know, at the time, I was just like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go to Melbourne. Like, that feels like a place where I can fit in. So I left and went there and, and sort of didn't really look back for a while. And, you know, obviously I still got family there. So I'd go back every now and then, probably not as much as I wish, you know, that I had in, in some respects, but I needed to, like, get far away. And I feel like it's changed a lot now. I feel like it's a different place. I was, and I've I've also changed a lot. And I think for me going back to play at something like that, I kind of realised how important it is that I do that so that local, like, young kids out there who probably feel isolated in the way that I did, Slight, maybe slightly less so because there's the internet now. <laughs> but like back then, it was like you know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of places to look to see myself reflected back. So to go there and be that kind of you know brown queer person 
on stage that's actually from Dubbo originally or, like, has grown up there. You know, I think hopefully that's, like, mm. kind of, kind of ex- like, it shows them, like, maybe kids that are feeling like I did that, you know, that there is potential to have a career in the arts or, like, to pursue whatever it is that they're interested in and that they can be successful at it. Uh, in some ways now... Um you're as famous for your stories and your identity as as you are your music. Is that something that you that you embrace generally? Oh, look, it's really complicated and it's super complex. Like, in some respects, uh, yeah, sure, I embrace that because I understand that it's important in changing that conversation and it's important to, like... Unfortunately, the situation is that there wasn't representation. Now we're in a process of like kind of change where we're starting to see that representation happen, but people still need like people like myself, you know, who have a platform need to remain vocal about it and keep championing those things. Um, we're not quite at the stage where like I can just be or artists like myself can just be artists without having to bring their identity or like, you know, without their identity being brought into it, whether or not they bring it, you know? Mm. And I think that was for the longest time, I actually avoided that conversation around identity. This is like, you know, like you said before, and by the way, it's really weird hearing people talk about you and give a like synopsis of who you are when you're, <laughs> when you're sitting in the room. But it's like, you know, you were saying um, that, I kind of those stories were absent previously in my songwriting and and you know my storytelling. That's not necessarily true. Well, like I mean, it is it is and it's not. Um, I I intentionally did not want to for the longest time politicize my music, and I realized that my identity is like inherently political, and I wanted to be. I believed in meritocracy. I was like, it doesn't matter who I am, as long as my music is good. And and then I realised that even if I wasn't saying anything about who... Like, I thought that just being visible and being that kind of, like, who I am and standing in public, like, is political in, in itself and that I didn't need to actually talk about these things. But then I realised that people were politicising my identity anyway as a queer person of colour, as a queer woman of colour. Um people were having a conversation around my identity and I wasn't participating in it. Mm. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, like I, if you're going to have a conversation about me, I'm going to be included in that conversation. And hopefully this changes things like for future generations so that, you know, people like myself don't have to, you know, unpack their identity like publicly for, you know, in their art. Like you can just... Because you don't ask, you, you know, you don't ask other people to do that. So, you know, it's 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 super complicated. Sure, sure. From <laughs> from uh, <laughs> mating elephants to uh, <laughs> the topic of race and identity, <laughs> a, a pretty <laughs> full hey, throttle I'm, beginning I'm, to the, to the a, program. I'm a really like complex three dimensional character. I uh, mate, let, let's play some music, Mojo. What what would you like to play for us first? Okay. This first song that I've chosen is Tension by Kira Peru. You all know it. 
I know you do. Kira Peru is like one of my best friends of all time. We're like family. And there's like a real story to this song in particular. So tell me it. You want to know the story? Yeah, I'd like to. Okay. So, like, I first heard this song as a demo. Um, Kira had been working on it, and I'd like, I'd sort of heard it. And then, and then when the song came out, and it was like going gangbusters, and she was like, I'm going to make a film clip for this. And then she had a few, like, she wanted the leading man in the film clip. And she'd had a few options and they'd kind of fallen through people being a bit flaky or whatever and she was like I'm really struggling to find the right person for this job they need to be able to dance they need to be a bit funny but they also need to be like really handsome and um you know we were like struggling to find the right person I couldn't think of anyone to suggest to her and and then I was in I was actually in Dubbo at the time we'd just finished playing a show and I was with my brother Steve and it's his birthday today, by the way. Um, he plays drums with me, and he we were like having a bit of an after party after the show, and tension came on the stereo, and Steve just starts dancing, and I was like, oh my god! And I just filmed him on my phone, and then I sent the film on my phone to Kira, and she was like, oh my god! I can't believe I didn't think of Steve. <laughs> and she's like, one. he's the one. He's the perfect person for this clip. And she was like, um, you know. Uh, is it weird if I put him as the kind of love interest in my film clip, seeing as we kind of are like family? He's sort of like a brother to me. Can I put him as my love interest in the clip? And I'm like, I think that that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're we're acting. You're also not related. So, So, Steve, if you've seen the film clip to Tension, that's actually my little brother. Uh, who's the lead character in that clip. And I I kind of was adamant um, that I didn't want to be in the clip, but I do make a cameo, so (laughs) here it is. Moment just before 
Soulful pop was Melbourne-based Kira Peru and Tension today brought into FBI Radio Studio by Mojo Juju. She is my guest on Out of the Box today. <laughs> Mojo, can you paint a picture of West Dubbo? Uh, this is a region, regional <laughs> New South Wales where you spent most of your childhood. Well, I feel like it's changed a lot these days. I don't know what it's really like now. but Can you, um, can you tell me a little bit about it when you were growing up sure um where well you know i think west dubbo was always the one that like the suburb that was in the news like that was like the rough side of town it was like the wrong side of the tracks um you know there was like a lot of um housing commission areas around there and i think it got a really bad rap but it wasn't actually that bad I don't think it was as bad as, you know, people made it out. I think that was just, like, the attitude at the time to kind of generalise about that demographic, you know, that they kind of perceived, like, that's a trouble side of town or whatever. Mm. Um, did you embrace... Did, did, is that something that you carried with you? I mean, those sorts of uh, attitudes, particularly when you're talking about an, an area and, I mean, you as a child growing up in that area, did you... Is that something that you internalised or...? I, I've probably internalised a, <laughs> a lot of things. But to be totally honest, like, I was fairly privileged in that, you know, in that sense. Like, we didn't... We weren't, we weren't living in a housing commission house, like, at all, and... But I, I guess, like, I went to a public school on that side of town and so a lot of people that I grew up with kind of did. And it was, like, I don't know, it's tricky, like, because, you know, like, the I guess there was there's a huge Indigenous population and it sort of was really concentrated on that side of town. And I, f I think I remember it was, like maybe like 80% of the students in my school were Indigenous and then like the other 20% were like kind of from agricultural sort of maybe like a little bit more well off. So there was like this mm. disparity in like... Was that was that very clear, that dynamic? Uh, was there a kind of demarcation in, in school mm, politics or...? No, nah, I think they did a fairly good job of trying to like bridge that gap, the school itself. Right. I like... You know, as much as I, at the time, I was probably very rebellious and kind of angry about a lot of things. But, no, nah, I think they did. I think that, you know, like, the they did fairly well. Um, but, yeah, you know, it was just, it's it's just an interesting kind of thing to look at. And I feel like it was a long time ago. Sure. <laughs> um, going back even longer ago, uh, your dad had migrated from the Philippines to Australia in the 80s. Yeah. What 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 caused him to migrate? Um, he actually, yeah, so he came from the Philippines. He, he actually came via the, the United States. So he lived in um, the US for about 10 years 
before he came here. He came, he, his family had tried to migrate to Australia like several times before, like during like the 70s and, and prior to that, like when my dad was younger. And, um, and they were actually rejected because of the white Australia policy. Really? Yeah. And then anyway, my mum ended up doing an exchange program to the Philippines and staying with my dad's family. And my dad was, he got drafted into the US Army because US occupation in the Philippines and there was like compulsory military at the university. So he ended up in the US Army during Vietnam. That's how he ended up in the States. My mum was an exchange student staying at my dad's family's home and he came home to visit and they met. And then like a year later, my mum went to the States to try and find him and like meet up and there was this like romance and everything and then um they ended up there for a little bit and then coming back to Australia because they wanted to raise us here so um yeah that's sort of how my dad ended up in Australia it's like this crazy random story but it's sort of like it's kind of a cool romantic (laughs) story in a way yeah was there a Filipino community in Dubbo a really small one and sort of not really anyone my age that I kind of knew. My younger brother, Steve, who play, yeah, who plays in the band, he, he had a, like a best friend that was Filipino as well. And we did like kind of go to these Filipino parties every now and then where they played karaoke. Like all the adults did karaoke <laughs> and um, we had like we ate incredible filipino food all the all the like aunties would like cook and we'd like eat this amazing food but then they'd make the kids like perform like i think i th- i think anyone who's filipino probably has been to these parties and and knows exactly what i'm talking about okay. they sort of make you like perf- make all the children perform for the adults and and that kind of thing. So a, that, a first taste of things to come for you as a performer. Maybe. Yeah, well, you know, like, I used to hate it. I was like, I'm not doing that. I just, I'm not doing that. But then, but then it's like, do I want to eat pancit and adobo? Like, yes, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna perform. That's the trade-off. Uh, your dad spoke four languages. Is that right? Yes. Did uh, did he pass his Filipino heritage on onto you directly? Did he make an effort to do that? Yeah, like I feel like, we, you know, actually growing up, like, so, you know, you mentioned before my mum's Wiradjuri. She's actually mixed race. So she's got Wiradjuri heritage and European heritage. And uh, we didn't grow up in community there. I sort of grew up knowing all, knowing all along that um, that we were Wiradjuri and, of course, experiencing like a lot of people just assuming that we were black growing up. But I never really, like, I've never really identified as black, I identify as brown or as a person of color and and kind of really Im- like stand in solidarity with First Nations people and really, you know, like I, I'd never deny that part of my heritage, but I definitely grew up feeling much more, like I had much more knowledge and much more access to my Filipino heritage and my Filipino culture because my dad grew up there and so I had this direct line of like deep connection to it. Do you think that was something that other people put on you as well? I mean, in school, for instance? Yeah, well, the thing about being mixed race is often that you kind of denied access from all communities. Mm. Tell um, me about that. Well, you know, like if you're not black enough and you're not Asian enough and you're not definitely, like never, I've never, ever, ever 
been white enough. Like people never mistake me as white. No one's ever accused me of being white. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but you grow up in a town where there is like real racial segregation and kind of at a time when there was real racial segregation. I don't know how it is right now, but there was tension. And so it was like you go out and, you know, you're a teenager or whatever and you're hanging out in the mall or whatever and the cops just see you as someone who's brown and they just assume that you're trouble, you know, and so you get targeted and or teachers make, you know, you. so it's like, yeah, it's tricky. Mm. And your, your grandmother had a particular strategy to um, help you deal with some of the otherness that you were feeling. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah. So I remember being um, like really young, probably like kindergarten age and there were kids at school and they were giving me heaps, um, kind of mocking me for being Asian, like pulling their eyes back and like taunting me with like songs and whatever. And I went home and I was like, they were calling me Chinese, which like, you know, in the late 80s, uh, Chinese was like the generic term for anyone Asian, I feel like, in Australia. Everyone just assumed if you're Asian, you're Chinese. So these kids, they saw me and they were like, oh, you, you look Asian. So they were calling me Chinese and I got really upset. And like, I didn't really, you know, I didn't understand. I knew that it was intended to hurt me and I was hurt by it. And I went home and I was like crying to my my grandmother and she was she just was like here look and she pulled out the encyclopedia and looked up China and was reading to me from like the world book encyclopedia this is pre-internet mm. that's how old I am <laughs> <laughs> so she's showing me like in the encyclopedia about China and Chinese people and she was like it's not an insult like Chinese people are beautiful it's such a rich culture it's like that's nothing to be ashamed of they can't hurt you by calling you that and I was like whoa mind blown like yeah cool I get that. On the topic of grandparenthood, what are you going to play for us now, Mojo? Ah, uh, okay. So there's this song, Kukuru Kuku Paloma. And I heard this song when I was like in my early 20s. It was on a, a soundtrack to a film called Habla Con Ella. I heard it and I immediately like just felt overwhelmed with emotion. And I was kind of, I just started crying. And I was just like, whoa, this song is like, having a really intense emotional effect on me but I didn't I couldn't place why or, or what it was it's a beautiful song but I didn't know what you know it's a, it was just it felt really visceral like I was I was really moved by it and so I was like you know there was no Shazam I didn't have a smartphone I was like I sound so old saying this but anyway I was like I looked you know I was looking for it everywhere trying to find this song and then finally I, I found it on the soundtrack to this film and um and and so I was like, wow, this song's amazing. And I played it to my mom and I said, hey, mom, like, check out this song. It's so good. And she was like, ah, oh, I know this song. Your grandfather, your Beto, so my dad's dad, used to sing this song to you when you were a baby, when you were crying and make you go to sleep. Dicen que por las noches no más se le iba en puro llorar 
Dicen que no comía, no más se le iba en puro tomar. Juran que el mismo cielo se estremecía al oír su llanto. Como sufría por ella, que hasta en su muerte la fue llamando. Kukurukuku Paloma, performed by Saturno Veloso, a Spanish ode to lovesickness, brought into FBI Radio today by musician Mojo Juju. <laughs> she is my guest on Out of the Box. Mojo, was there music in the household when you were growing up? Yeah, there was lots of it. Tell me about it. Um, I feel like I tell this story all the time, but my, my granddad was a massive jazz fan and oh he is a massive jazz fan he played the cornet and the trumpet and my grandmother was a singer um i've actually got some old um 78s of her singing soprano at home wow it's amazing um and my mom played the trom or my mom plays the trombone my uncle played the clarinet and the Saxophone, my first like kind of serious instrument was the clarinet, which I inherited from him. I still have it. Um, and my first guitar was inherited from my auntie. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of music around. Obviously, play music with my brother. Um, Your grandfather, particularly, you mentioned was it was a jazz. Buff. Oh yeah. Can you tell me a bit about him? Yeah, he's like you know a total 
jazz enthusiast. He was the president of the jazz club. There's a big jazz festival that happens in Dubbo. Right. It's happened forever. And when we were kids, we would go to that. And that's like some of the first live music I remember seeing was as a child with my grandparents, you know, going to the jazz festival. Um, Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong were like the heads of the household, you know. They were like, <laughs> they were they were highly revered and everything was about them. And I remember my granddad would put on like, you know, he'd put on a record and be like, "What's who's this? And you'd be like, that's Billie Holiday. And he's like, no, who's playing the clarinet? <laughs> <laughs> who's playing the drums? And, and, you know, and he would know every single instrumentalist on every record. He'd know when it was recorded, where it was recorded, you know, and he'd know like everything about every player. And so it kind of instilled this real appreciation you know, beyond like the vocalist or the band leader, it was like every single player in that band has a part that is vital and every single one of them contributes something unique to that music. Tell me about the first band that you were in. This is at about 12 years of age. <laughs> How do you know about that? Oh. You've good, done like heavy research. Good, good producers. Okay. Yeah, no, like, yeah, I, I think I started my first band, like, 12, like, in high school. Um, you know, I, I remember actually showing up to my first ever music class in high school and I had sheet music for, I swear, do you know that song? No, no, no. Ah, I, yeah, um, all for one, like, R&B tune, early 90s, I had this sheet music, I brought it in, I was really excited, I had sheet music for, like, um, E17 as well and I wanted to like sing these songs and then yeah. I got there and everyone else was just like all about like Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think like I think um, Frog Stomp had come out the year that I started high school so they were just like yeah it was all grunge and that kind of thing and I was like oh fuck I need to like fast track my education on like rock music I know nothing. And um, and so, yeah, kind of, I decided that Violent Femmes were my favourite band. and That was the decision that you made. Yeah. And then I was like, you know, like I listened to a bunch of stuff and I was like, these guys are the ones that I get. Because it was kind of, it was more melodic to me and like kind of weird and quirky and there were cool bass lines. So I was drawn to that more than just like straight up kind of like distorted guitars and whatever. How did some of your early performances go? Um, they were, you know, it was amazing. So I, I think I know what you, I think I know what you're leading to. Oh yeah, I do want to. I do. <laughs> you want to hear a story? I do. I'd, I would love to hear about Jimmy Little actually, specifically. This is at 16 years of age. Yeah, when I was like 16, my band, my high school band, garage band, um, we supported Jimmy Little at the Dubbo Civic Centre. Um, and Jimmy Little, I feel like you, most people probably know this. I don't know. He's he's a bit of a legend. Like he's an icon in Australian music and an Indigenous man who, yeah, is kind of just so charismatic and smooth and just like there's something there's something about him that was just incredibly charming and. So we, I was really excited. He'd just put out an album at the time called The Messenger and it was like a series of covers of of different Australian bands predominantly, I think. And although, you know, 
there was some crowded house on there. <laughs> it's not technically Australian, is it? I don't know. Um, so yeah, and yeah, we 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 had this incredible opportunity to support him on on this show, and uh, I remember being really hyped about it. And 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 then we were there for sound check and everything, and it was like our first like professional, really professional show, and. Jimmy was nowhere to be found and everybody was kind of freaking out. Where'd he go? Like, what's he doing? Like, we need him. And then he just cruises on in, like, right at the last minute, like, right before doors. And he's just, like, slick, like, in this beautiful suit, like, hair perfect. And he was just, like, so relaxed and chill. And I was just like, oh, my God, this guy is amazing. He just, you know, there was just... Did you speak to him? Yeah. And he... um. You know, he came and he gave us some some sage advice about the music industry. And I remember him coming up after we'd finished performing and just being like, <laughs> "You, uh, I feel like I can't, like, I feel like there's, like, something sacred about the exchange that I kind of, you know, that's, like, really personal that I want to keep to myself. But I also was like, I will tell you, like, one of the things that he said to me. He was like, you're on cloud seven. And he said, and I can see you on cloud nine. And he's like, you keep doing this. You keep doing this and you're going to get there. So I was like, okay, cool. If you think so, I will. <laughs> and I don't know. I just like, it was just so beautiful. And actually a couple of years ago, I received a letter from his daughter and it was just, I don't know. I think it was a really special, um, a really special moment for me kind of at the beginning of my career and he, how, how can we best tribute Jimmy Little off well, the back of that? The, the song that I've chosen is from his album, The Messenger. And I chose Quasimodo's Dream because it's also it's actually a cover of a band called The Reels who are also from Dubbo, which I think is really interesting because I don't know that many bands from Dubbo. But Dave Mason, who wrote this song, is technically my step-uncle. It builds you up till you've had enough then won't let you be they won't alleviate heartache knocks at your door gives you the score then won't set you free just when you say no more I hand for a king Oh, I never wanted to be in Quasimodo's Me. 
when you say no more, a hand is for a key. Oh, was, of course, country music icon Jimmy Little with Quasimodo's Dream, a cover of a song originally by Dubbo Band, The Reels, and a tribute to the hometown of musician Mojo Juju. She's my guest on Out (laughs) of the Box today. Obviously, Mojo, as a child, uh, you were made acutely aware of your Filipino heritage, uh, but you didn't discover or confirm your Wiradjuri side until your mother went through a process of finding, um, researching family lineage uh, a bit later in your life as a teenager. Can you tell me about what what drove your mother to start doing that um, that research? Well, I mean, we actually knew always. Um, it's a complicated story. So my grandmother, my mum's mum, is Wiradjuri. And it's sort of 
that's like that sort of that lineage is through her. And so the story kind of is that her her father she didn't know who fa- her father was until um he passed or she knew him all her life and she had a very close relationship to him and she kind of This is your grandmother. My grandmother knew her father always. She had a very close relationship to him. Um she kind of she kind of I think knew all along that he was her father but everybody kind of lied about it and um, tried very hard to keep that from her and then once her parents passed away when I was like a baby then all of his family kind of reached out to her and went he was your dad we're your family and they really embraced her and so she finally got that kind of I don't know there's like this there's a lot of kind of hurt and resentment and all these things about the fact that she kind of didn't get to have that relationship with him while what, he was what alive. What was the story there? Why why was she denied access to her father? I mean, how did her well, father and her, your great-grandmother meet, for example? So they were like, they were, Pearl and Jack were high school sweethearts. They were like young lovers kind of thing. They were, yeah. And they they had this romance, but they weren't allowed to be together. And so they were kind of kept apart. And then Pearl married another guy. Uh, Arthur and they had six kids and my grandmother was the youngest but she didn't look like anybody else she looked quite quite a bit different to everyone else in fact what did that mean? (laughs) that she had dark skin and dark hair and dark eyes and everyone else was like blonde growing up in a white family yep and she wasn't, to her knowledge, adopted. No. And so her father, like, well, her supposed father, Arthur, he he passed away. And her mother continued to have this friendship with Jack, who was always sort of around. And he was very close to my grandmother. They had this really special relationship. They had this special bond, and he kind of... When she got older, he would constantly reach out to her and be like, please come, I have something really important to tell you. Please come to my house, I want to tell you this thing. And her mum was like, no, you can't go. You're forbidden from seeing him. And she invited, you know, she still like, she she loved him. And they had this really, he was always there for her. He, he you know, he, he would constantly reach out. He would do things like he would come into her work when she had her first job and once a week he would give her money to buy a new stockings to wear to work for the week, you know. Mm. Or like, um, you know, when she was a kid, she'd see him out and he'd see her in the street and he'd give her money to buy like, you know, an ice cream or whatever. And he was always like there for her. She felt a lot of love for him and she has all these cute stories about him. Um, she invited him to her wedding when she was getting married and her mom said no you can't have him there you need to uninvite him from the wedding or I won't come so she then had to go and uninvite him and he said that's okay I understand and he gave her a hundred dollars which I think at the time was a lot of money and she bought this furniture and it's still in the like she's you know it was still in her house up until just recently now they're in the you know they're getting older and it's like kind of yeah, um, it's in my mom's house now, but it's stayed in the family and, and it's kind of, I think they're like a bit of an heirloom, like everybody knows that's the furniture 
from Jackson. And, and you know, everything about him always growing up was so kind of revered. Like, he just, you know, it was like he was an amazing man and and all of this. So so then when, yeah, when when um, my grandmother's parents passed away, then all of Jackson's family kind of reached out and went, we can confirm for you that this is, you know, this is fact. Like, he was your father. He didn't marry anyone else. He didn't have any other kids. He loved you very much. And um, all of, you know, my, my grandmother's siblings, who were a bit older, knew they kind of had seen that their mother was having this affair with this man and were like, yep, Jack was your dad. And so she kind of, it was like this really important special thing, which is why I guess I I felt such an urgency and such a need to tell that story on this record because I wanted to, you know, as I'm watching my grandmother getting older and just knowing that I, I've heard these stories, these kind of legendary stories about Jackson all my life and they've been repeated and repeated and repeated. And then I guess as a teenager, my mum went, okay, well, I'm going to, I want to learn more about him and I want to learn more about his family. And so my mom and my auntie kind of, um, that's when they kind of really went into a deep kind of, we need to like learn everything about our family and our culture and all of this because that's been denied to us and they you know and it's like really evident because they you know I think my my mom's probably the fairest one in the family but it's like something that you wear they you know my auntie my uncle and my grandma they wear on their skin and they wear in their face and their features and stuff and so it was like to kind of know it and have it in your heart and kind of like they always did, but like to actually be able to kind of go, okay, we know exactly who we are and access that mm. kind of family history and that story meant so much. So it's super complicated and there's like massive, there's deep wounds and and a lot of hurt around that story. But I was like, I need to tell it in as a guess, as a way to honour my family. It's not about entitlement to like blackness or that black you know history but it's just about honoring the family i want to get to native tongue in a moment but first let's play uh, a track this is from titus can you tell me why you've chosen them um because sort of i guess growing up um or like as a teenager i remember hearing these guys and sort of um being super inspired and really excited about seeing three women on on stage together, singing harmony, singing in language, um, you know, and sort of really boldly embracing their indigeneity. And um, actually, when I first came to Melbourne, one of the first um, tours that I ever did was supporting Sally Dasty from Titters. It was like, I played with her in Melbourne and then we kind of did a few shows regionally and I was very excited because it was like, this is my first tour and it's with someone who is kind of a hero. Take me to your heart Time ago Take me to your
That there is Titus with Takoa, chosen by Mojo Juju on Out of the Box, who's still with us for a couple of minutes longer. Mojo, I want to bring this uh, up to the present. Uh, Last year, you released your album, uh, Native Tongue. Uh, It was... Its content was somewhat of a departure from some of the stuff that you'd produced previously. Uh, And it certainly put you into the centre, or at least on the peripheries of some sort of national conversation through the stories that you were telling. Can you tell me a little bit about producing Native Tongue? Yeah, well, I mean, I think aesthetically it was like just a natural progression of where I wanted to go musically. In terms of like the narrative, it was about... It was probably born out of a little bit of frustration where I was like, I'm sick of being boxed and having these doors closed to me because I'm perceived in a certain way. You know, like I'm not femme enough to, you know, like I'm. if you're queer, I feel like as a woman you have to still fit into like a certain box, you know, and if you're if you're it was like there was too many different intersecting parts of my identity that kind of marginalized me in a way that it wasn't it was like the music industry just couldn't handle um or, or couldn't understand where to place me as an artist and it was just like that's crap like that's not um you know I, i'm just making music so i like there was part of that but then there was also part of me that was like watching what was going on with my family and going uh everybody you know my grandparents are getting older i I really personally want to tell their stories while I still have access to them firsthand. I really want to pay homage to my grandparents who have been hugely influential in terms of like the person that I've become, but also, you know, the fact that I have a career in music. Um, so it was very personal and it was sort of, I got to a point where I was like, I don't care if no one hears this, I'm going to do it and I'll do it my way. And it just so happens, like, really ironically that that's the album that everybody's kind of really latched onto. Yeah, I mean, the truth is that a lot of people have listened to it. Yeah. Uh, how, how does it feel having, 
your personal stories out there in such a way that now they've kind of become part of your public identity? Um, like it is tricky and it can be really hard. But also it's kind of cool because it means that a lot of people have reached out to say, hey, this is my story too. And I really relate to that and I really identify with what you're saying. And to hold that space and to know that that is being reflected back for people means a lot because that's what I didn't have reflected back at me. That's what I, you know, I grew up not having that representation. So it's like, oh, actually, you know, I, I sort of didn't really sign up to be a spokesperson for anyone else except for me. I'm just telling my <laughs> stories. But if that means something to you, then I'm really happy that I could c- contribute that to the world. And, you know, or just like for that single person and that's like that's touched in some way, then I'm really glad that that exists. And it's kind of like, you know, once they're done, they're out in the world, you kind of just got to let go of them and sort of go, okay, that's they, they sort of exist beyond my own personal meaning now. Mojo, what can we what can we play out with today? What okay, I'm gonna leave with? you. I know I've played I've played like a weird random selection of music, um, probably not what you would have expected from <laughs> me, because um, I I like to play a lot of hip hop and R and B, but I've played a lot of mellow tunes. I'm gonna leave you with Vicar and Linda because they're really really iconic and really really important figures for me, you know, and I think for a lot of people my age that are brown, a lot of women. Um, I grew up seeing these two women on TV and hearing them on the radio and they were like one of the very few kind of female acts that I knew of that were that were women of colour. And and I think sort of growing up, my auntie and I, people would always go, oh, you guys look like Vicar and Linda. And I was like, I'm okay with that. And I would sing their songs and my auntie and I would like do the songs and my auntie and I would like do the dance moves and we would like joke around and pretend to be Vicar and Linda. And then, the, you know, like randomly now that I have a career in the music industry, I have, I've had the incredible honour and opportunity to work with them a number of times. And I tell you, they live up to everything I ever hoped they would be. They're like the most beautiful and intensely professional, like just stunning performers. Every time I see them, I get goosebumps, I cry, I like, but it's just joyous. And they're just the most lovely people you will ever meet. I that. think they're the best people in the music industry. Like, seriously, I love them. So this is Vicar and Linda Ball. <laughs> On that very uh, warm <laughs> note, I'd like to thank my producers, Bree and Nicole and Mojo Juju. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for being on Out of the Box. No worries. Thank you.
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.